Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. Al here, and today we're going to be taking a, another look at Swords from Myth and Legend. Today we're going to be taking a look at Swords from Japan. Now, before I begin, let me forewarn you, I do not speak a word of Japanese. I'm probably going to be mispronouncing a lot of words in the episode today. So, when we think of Japan, uh, specifically swords associated with that country, there's two types of swords that probably come to mind. The ninjato and the katana. Now, while I was doing research for this episode, it seems that there's a, there's a bit of a linguistic issue sometime with the classification of various uh, Japanese swords. So I'm not really going to get into that aspect of it. I'm going to, like I said, going to be focusing mostly on some basic types of swords and then how do you use, uh, how you might convert some legendary Japanese swords to Dungeons and Dragons. But like I said, probably the ninja toe and the katana are the most well-known of Japanese weapons. The ninja toe, that actually is most likely an invention of the movie industry. As far as research has shown, there is no historical example of a ninja toe. Probably the closest we would have to that type of weapon is a sword called a chokudo. And this is an early single-bladed straight sword that was in use in Japan at least before the 900s and would probably continue to see some use uh, as the years progressed, but it was primarily the weapon that uh, was, or the sword that was most common before some of the other types of swords uh, came into use. Another example of an early sword is called a Tsurgi, and this is the double-bladed straight sword. Now, eventually, the Japanese started to make uh, their swords with a curve to them and went back to single blades. So another type of prominent Japanese sword is called the Tachi. It's similar the, to the Katana, but was worn with the cutting edge facing down. Now, as far as why they started to make the swords with the curves, I've heard a couple different theories. Uh, one theory is it just looked more aesthetically pleasing. There's also another theory that it would help with when you were drawing the weapon from the, the sheath. And another one, and I could be wrong on this, but it was also believed that the curve made the weapon more effective when used from horseback. These swords started appearing around the 10th century and were in fairly widespread use until around the 16th century. So these swords are a little bit longer, but a little bit lighter than their more famous relative, the katana. So the katana is probably the most well-known of Japanese weapons, and they were developed in response to changing conditions. When the Mongols invaded Japan in the late 1200s, they wore a tough leather armor, and the longer, thinner tachi blades didn't do very well against this, this tougher armor. 
So the katana was believed to have been developed as a response to this. The blade was a bit thicker and the curve became less pronounced and the sword was also made a little bit shorter. Another big difference between a tachi and a katana is the katana was worn with the blade, the cutting edge facing up. So the design of the katana was intended to make it more effective in close quarter combat uh, than the tachi was as it was usually a bit quicker to draw. And again, having a being a shorter weapon, it would be more suited to close range combat than the longer tai chi was. The companion to the katana, another well-known Japanese sword, is the wakazashi. It was forged in a similar fashion to the way the katana is with the layers of folded steel. Other times, though, it could be forged using different methods. Now, as far as swords go, uh, in order to carry a longer weapon, you usually had to be part of a specific class. However, the wakasashi was a sword that the, a common man could carry. A samurai was the only person who was allowed to carry both a katana and a wakasashi. Also, the wakasashi was normally carried indoors as, again, its smaller size than the katana made it more practical for self-defense in those types of situations. Uh, generally, the sword would be left uh, right at, outside the door, or right by the door when you first came in. Now, usually if you go to flea markets or uh, sometimes like hobby stores or uh, comic book stores sometimes, uh, usually they'll sell a set of three weapons. A katana, a wakasashi, and a tanto, with the tanto being a knife. Again, usually straight bladed. Now, the wakasashi has a cousin, a weapon called the kodachi. And again, this is a shorter, smaller sword. Again, generally used by commoners for defense against outlaws and bandits. The final two swords I'd like to talk about are dedicated two-handed swords, the nodachi, which means field sword, and the odachi, which means great sword. So like I said, these would be your equivalent to, probably be equivalent to your uh, two-handed swords in D&D. Now, as far as how you'd stat this out, I believe uh, every edition from first edition on has had some supplement where they did discuss the game statistics for the katana and the wakasashi. I think for the most part, the wakasashi performed in a similar fashion to a short sword. The katana was usually pictured as being a little bit better than your standard long sword. Now, whether that's the actual case, again, that's something that sword enthusiasts and historians hotly debate. And again, you go to YouTube, if you look up videos of the katana versus the European longsword, you're going to find different opinions. But as far as I can tell, the, when used by a swordsman of the same level of skill against you know, the same conditions, the same types of armor, usually the European-style straight swords are a bit more effective than the katana. 
because as I recall, uh, and again, I apologize, I forgot where I heard it, whether it was a video on YouTube or somewhere or an article I read, but the steel that was usually used for katanas was actually not the greatest quality of steel, which is why they had to use the methods they did in order to produce a workable uh, blade that was going to stand up to the rigors of combat. So, again, the Odachi, no Odachi, you could probably treat those as two-handed swords. Uh, the Tachi, I would probably stat that similar to a, a bastard sword or hand-and-a-half sword. And then the uh, Chokudo and Tsuguri probably would stat those similar to short swords. Well, we're going to take a look at some weapons from Japanese folklore and legend right after this quick announcement. It was a dark and stormy night, and the hosts of the Queens of the Damned podcast had just gathered around the fire with their tomes of forgotten lore. Don't forget the wine! And a lot of wine, much of which had already been imbibed. For her part, Miranda was discussing... A history of Frankenstein, from its conception to Karloff's beloved role as the monster. And Rachel would continue with... Vincent Price. Like, everything about Vincent Price. And as the fire died down, Nikki would conclude the evening... With something related to gothic literature, probably. You know me so well. Do you like listening to three women debate about the cultural significance of the horror genre? And also axe murders. I do love a good old-timey axe murder story. Then Queens of the Damned, a horror podcast, is the show for you. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere you can download a podcast. Visit us at queensofthedamnedpodcast.wordpress.com, qotdpodcast.podbean.com, or email us at qotdpodcast at gmail.com for more details about our monthly horror giveaways. Stay spooky! And we're back. So first, I'd like to talk about two names that, if you're a fan of video role-playing games, you've probably heard these two names before. And if I'm not mistaken, they've appeared in anime as well. And that is Masamune, or Masamune, and Muramasa. Now, these names actually are not referring to swords, but rather sword makers. Now, it's, there's a misconception out there that the two of them were contemporaries and that Muramasa was the student of Masamune. This, though, is, extreme, is probably extremely unlikely as the two were believed to have lived several decades apart. Masamune's full name was Goro Nuyo Masamune. He was regarded as the best swordsmith in Japanese history. His blades were known to be of great beauty and quality and were often regarded as holy objects. Muramasa's full name was Sengo Muramaso. I'm sorry, Sengo Muramasa. He was also a skilled swordsmith, though usually swords named after him in video games and popular culture are often regarded as dark or cursed. Now, this is certainly not a new idea. 
The belief that Muramasa's swords had dark qualities dates back to at least the late 1700s. Some legends say that once one of his swords was drawn, it could not be put back in its sheath until it drew blood. And as you might recall, we can find a parallel to this in Norse mythology, as I discussed in episode 226. It's believed that his swords fell out of favor after a shogun cut himself on one of Muramasa's blades. Now, as I mentioned before, there's a popular legend that Muramasa was one of Masamune's, or Masamune's students. And it was said that Muramasa challenged his master to a contest to see who could make the better swords. Masamune created a sword called Yawarkati, which translates to tender hands. Muramasa created a sword called Juuchi Yusamu, which translates to 10,000 cold nights. Now, in this contest, they put their swords in the river with the blade facing the current. Now, it was said that Muramasa's sword cut everything that passed its way. Fish, leaves floating down the, the river, the air which blew by it. However, Masamune's sword would allow everything to float past it unharmed. So Muramasa had bragged that he had won the contest. However, a monk who had been watching what he had just seen decided to weigh in. He judged that Masamune had created the better sword because Muramasa's blade was bloodthirsty and evil, and it did not discriminate as to who or what it would cut. It would, as the one line from the story goes, it may just as well be cutting down butterflies as severing heads. However, Masamune's sword would not cut the undeserving. So how might we stat these weapons out? Now, Yawarakati, again, tender hands, I would probably stat that as a holy sword since Masamune's swords were often considered to be holy or, or sacred weapons. However, in keeping line with the legend, I would probably add something else to the weapon, and that is it cannot kill an opponent unless they initiated hostilities. So I could see other ways to work with this as well. So again, since it was said it would not cut the undeserving, let's say you had someone who attacked the wielder of this sword, but that person was under magic control, or maybe they were forced to do it because someone was keeping their family hostage. So I might make it that the weapon, maybe it could hurt that person, but it couldn't actually kill them because they weren't necessarily deserving of getting killed. Again, they were probably doing that under control or because they were being forced to. Now, as far as uh, 10,000 Cold Knights, Muramasa's sword, I would probably give that the properties of a sword cursed berserking. And I would probably also give it an evil alignment because, like I said, there's a folk legend that his weapons were uh, bloodthirsty and evil. I would make both of those weapons katanas. 
Now, the next five swords I'm going to be talking about are called the Tenka Gokin. These are believed to be the five best swords in Japan. And I think the name translates something to the effect of five best under heaven or something to that effect. So three of these weapons are national treasures of Japan. One is a Buddhist relic and one is in possession of the imperial family. The first sword is called Onimaru, which translates something to the effect of demon sword or demon cutter. So this weapon was used by a hero called Tsuna to cut the arm off of a demon named Ibaraki Doji in a work called the Taihiki, or Chronicle of Peace. However, I couldn't find an English translation of this work online, so unfortunately I wasn't able to find much about it, except that it was used to cut the arm off of a demon. So I would stat this out as a demon-slaying sword. So basically give it the same properties as a sword of dragon-slaying, except the bonuses apply to uh, only when used against demons. So as I recall, it's like plus two, plus four. And then I think it also, the the dragon slain swords anyway, give you a bonus to saving throws against uh, breath weapons. And I think spells cast by dragons. So I could see modifying that where uh, Onimaru would be plus two, plus four versus demons as well as giving you a plus two or plus three bonus to your saving throws against spells used by demonic creatures. The next three weapons are national treasures of Japan. First is Dojiguri. Now this sword belonged to a hero named Minamoto no Yoroshimitsu. I think that's how it's pronounced. But anyways, according to legends, there were reports of missing people near the city of Koyoto, and most of the missing people were young women. A diviner determined that an oni, or demon, was responsible. The emperor ordered Minamoto, as well as Fujiwara no Hosho, to investigate and kill the demon. So the two men went along with Minamoto's lieutenants as well as Fujiwara's secretary. While there, on their way, they met four men, and these were actually four gods in disguise. So the gods suggested that the men disguise themselves as priests. Well, they entered a cave, and they find a woman doing laundry. She informs them that they are captives and slaves to an oni named Shuten Doji. Now, in his true form, Shuten Doji was 50 feet tall and had a five-horned head with 15 eyes. So he forced the missing people to become his slaves, but sometimes he would kill them so he could eat their flesh and drink their blood. When the party meets the demon, they convince him to give them lodging. While at dinner, Shuten Doji tells the men of how his kind was displaced from their homeland in the Hira Mountains when the Enrukiaji Temple was built. During dinner, Minamoto gave the Oni a bottle of divine sake, or rice wine, 
which caused demons to enter a stupor. While the demon was incapacitated, the gods held down his arms and legs so Minamoto could cut off his head. So as far as how you would stat this one out, again, I would give it the properties of a demon-slaying sword similar to Onimaru. The next weapon is called Otenta, which is was owned by Medea Toshi, a 16th century general. One legend says that he used the sword to heal his daughter. And not only that, birds would approach would not approach a place where it was stored. Now, I really wasn't able to find much about the role of birds in Japanese folklore, but it does bring to mind a type of creature called a Tengu. Now, these creatures do exist in the works of Dungeons and Dragons, and they are usually pictured as humanoid birds who, well, they they could sometimes be antagonistic towards people, but... More often than not, they tended to be more mischievous, but not necessarily all-out hostile. So, this did get me to thinking. Now, Tengu are complex beings. They often appear as birds of prey or people with long noses. Sometimes, they carry a shakujo, or monk's staff. Now, if you've ever played the video game Final Fantasy X... It's somewhat similar in appearance to the staves that the character Yuna uses. So these, at least the pictures I've seen, these staves would have a fancy head and often had some rings on them. And the purpose of the rings was to make a noise so any insects up that the monk, in the direction the monk was watching would know that they would need to get out of the way so they wouldn't get crushed. It also let the faithful know that there was a monk nearby. Some legends say that Tengu were guilty of all manner of misdeeds, including possessing women and making them try to seduce holy men, carrying monks away and either dropping them in the wilderness or tying them to the top of a tree, stealing from temples, or misleading the faithful. However, some sources claim that there were both good and bad Tengu. Good Tengu could serve as protectors, and could aid humans. So as far as how we would stat this sword out, I would make it, again, similar to a sword of dragon slain, except against avians. So plus two, plus four versus avian creatures. Now since there is that tradition that uh, Toshi uh, used it to heal his daughter, I would give it some minor healing abilities as well. Maybe once a day cast something like either cure disease, neutralize poison, or cure blindness. Uh, Because again, I couldn't find specifically what he was healing his daughter of. Um, But in addition to that, I would also give it the ability to maybe cast like a cure serious or cure moderate wounds once a day as well. The final of the three national treasure swords is... Mikazuki, which means crescent moon. Couldn't find much about it, though according to a play called Kokaji, or known as the swordsmith, the weapon was blessed by Inari. This is a spirit that has been pictured as both male or female and is associated with foxes, 
prosperity, rice, agriculture, and commerce. He was also the patron of merchants and swordsmiths. Again, couldn't since I couldn't really find much about it, it's kind, it was kind of hard to determine how to, you could really stat this weapon out. Since it was blessed by a, a deity that was the patron of swordsmiths, I would probably give it a pretty good bonus, plus three or plus four. Couldn't really think of any special powers, except maybe make it immune to the touch of a rust monster. Well, the final of these five swords is a holy relic called Juzumaru, which means rosary sword. It is a relic in the religion of Nichiren Buddhism. I've talked about Buddhism a couple times here and there. If you go back to my episodes where I was taking a look at the mythological, religious, and literary roots of the different planes in, in First Edition's Manual of the Planes, I did talk about Buddhism a little bit when I was discussing the Seven Heavens and also talked about Buddhism when, in a bit more detail when I discussed Nirvana. So in that episode, I did mention there were a few different uh, sects of Buddhism. Now, the Nichiren Buddhism is a form of Mahayana Buddhism. Mahayana means great vehicle, which as far as I can remember from my religious studies classes, this is Buddhism for the masses. It was founded by Nichiren, who lived from 1222 to 1282. He preached the Lotus Sutra. This was a belief that all beings had the potential to achieve salvation. So one of the teachings in this, this doctrine is one Buddha vehicle and knowledge of all modes. So essentially, at least as far as I could understand it, they believe that similar teachings are just variations of the same Dharma. It is believed that Nichiren decorated the sword with a set of prayer beads in order to cleanse evil spirits, hence how it got its name, Rosary Sword. So, as far as how I would stat this one out, I would make it a plus two, plus four versus non-corporeal undead. And granted, uh, you know, I would also give it a an ability where it grants a, at least a plus three saving throw bonus against special attacks used by those types of creatures, such as fear or paralysis. Now, like I said, those five swords do still exist and are kept in various museums or collections. And as far as the type of sword they would be, uh, they were actually all Taichi swords, so they would not be katanas. Well, the next sword is one that I have actually talked about before, and that is... Kusangi no Tsurugi. This is one of the three imperial regalia of Japan. This sword is believed to exist along with a jewel and a mirror. These three items are not publicly displayed, and when taken out, they are covered up. And the reason for this is there are some legends that state that those who possess or even view the sword or one of these three holy relics can fall victim to misfortune or illness. Now, I mentioned in a previous episode, and I apologize, I forgot which one it was. I know it was one of my episodes about the planes. I think it was either 
Acheron or Arcadia. Because uh, one of the things that I use, that I talked about in those episodes is, in addition to talking about some of the religious or mythological roots of that plane, I also discussed some of the deities that were described as living there, according to Manual of the Plains, and I discussed whether that deity truly belonged there or not. And as I recall, there were a couple of deities where they sounded really out of place where I don't know if the people who wrote those earlier D and D supplements, maybe they got some bad information or they may have, you know, got their legends mixed up. But I do remember talking about this weapon because it was known by a couple different names, the grass cutting sword or the heavenly sword of gathering clouds. And I think I may have mentioned in that particular episode that there's probably a name about, you know, why it was called the grass cutting sword, but heavenly sword of of gathering clouds just sounded a whole lot cooler. Well, I actually did find the story about why it was called the grass cutting sword. Now, the sword was said to have belonged to a warrior named Yamoto Takiru. Yamoto was lured into an open grassland by a traitor. His horse was killed and his enemies shot fire arrows into the grass in an effort to make him burn to death. Yamato swung the sword in an effort to cut the grass with hopes that it would slow the speed of the fire or the spread of the fire so he could escape. However, when he found when he swung the sword, he found he could control the direction of the wind and blew it back at his attackers to turn the tables on them. So, I would give it a decent bonus, plus two or plus three. But, I would also give it the ability to cast various spells that influence air, such as Gust of Wind, Control Wind, or Feather Fall, but probably only just once a day. And I suppose if you wanted to, uh, since he did use it to control flames, you could maybe use it to cast effect normal fires once a day but if you are going to give it more spells that it can cast you just as for the sake of game balance you probably want to give it a lower bonus like I said maybe just a plus two now the final weapon I'd like to talk about doesn't have a proper name I call it Musashi's ore and first before we discuss this weapon I need to discuss a little bit about the person it's named after, Miyamoto Musashi. He's one of the most well-known of Japanese samurai, and I first learned about him in a series of choose-your-own-adventure books. Back when I was growing up in the 80s, these books were, were popular. I remember back in school, sometimes we would get uh, these handouts from Scholastic, and you could check off what books you wanted to buy. And then, of course, you'd have to, you know, have mom and dad either write you a check or give you the money and you could get some books. And usually they were pretty cheap, uh, at least as far as I remember, they were pretty cheap. Uh, Usually the books I always looked for were either Garfield books, because I was a big fan of Garfield the Cat back in the day, or choose your own adventure books. There is one that I did remember getting in a bookstore called Sword of the Samurai. And this was a part of a series of choose-your-own-adventure books that was called Time Traveler. Now, I'm not sure what the historical accuracy behind the book is, 
but I'm going to guess they probably put a fair amount of research into it. So in these time traveler books, you would go back and you'd try to recover various historical artifacts. And in this particular adventure, you had to recover the sword of Musashi. And you also were had a choice of choosing one of three items to take with you. In this particular book, I remember it was matches, a comb, or jelly beans. And again, depending on what what, what item you chose, that would sometimes get you out of a specific situation. Now, as I recall, there were actually some, well, not really gruesome endings, but I remember there was at least one bad ending in the book where you fell out of a tree and you broke both your legs. But the best ending of the book is you are visiting with Musashi just as he's dying. And before he can give you the sword, he passes away. And as I recall, if you took the sword, he would find out he was just testing you and he'd attack you. But if you chose to leave the cave, he would, you know, he would then wake up and he would, you know, say he appreciated your honesty and he would give you a sword. And I remember he was saying something like, you know, metal will rust and wood will rot. And, but he gave you the wooden sword because one of the things Musashi was known to do was travel around to various schools of swordsmanship to challenge their other warriors. And he was well known for fighting with a wooden sword. Another thing he's known well known for is writing something called the Book of Five Rings, which is just as much a book about strategy as it is about martial arts. It consists of five books, the Book of Earth, Water, Fire, Wind, and Void. If you're an Iron Maiden fan, you might have heard a song on the Peace of Mind album called Sun and Steel, which is actually about Musashi. And I remember there's a verse that goes through earth and water, fire and wind. You came at last. Nothing was the end. Uh, another and the song opens with uh, it's like you killed your first man at 13. Uh, killer instinct, animal supreme or warrior supreme. And by 16, you had learned to fight. Uh, the way of the warrior, you took it as your right, uh, which again does mirror historical events because, as I understand, uh, Bruce Dickinson's actually a bit of a history buff. So, Musashi did become a samurai at a fairly young age, and later in his life, he wrote this book. And now, the Book of Earth serves as an introduction, and as he says, know the smallest things and the biggest things, the shallowest things and the deepest things as if it were a straight road mapped out on the ground. These things cannot be explained in detail. From one thing, know 10,000 things. When you attain the way of strategy, there will not be one thing you cannot see. You must study hard. And as I remember when I read this book, that there were some uh, little sayings that he would repeat often, and it was like, you must train repetitively. You must learn this. You must study this well. In the Book of Earth, it also discusses things like the strengths of different types of weapons, including swords, spears, bows, and firearms. One of the things I remember, he was talking about how gun is the mightiest of weapons, but unlike a bow, you if you you know you can't see where the shot lands. So you can't correct your aim and you must appreciate the value of this. So again, 
kind of stressing that each weapon kind of had its good and its bad side. He also stressed that a warrior should familiarize himself with many different weapons, because as I recall, he said that if you only mastered one weapon, it would narrow your view and make it easier for an opponent to find weakness in your style. The Book of Water discusses strategy and philosophy. He stressed the need for balance as well as flexibility. This attitude would later be adopted by Bruce Lee, who wrote how water was formless and would take the form of its environment. You know, you pour it into a cup, it becomes the cup. You pour it into a kettle, it becomes the kettle. And he also explained how, you know, water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. And I remember in that sort of the samurai book, they often talked about seek, he would say to you, seek the way of water. When I read, actually got a chance to read the Book of Five Rings many years later when I was in college, I remembered that and I was always looking for that, but I never actually found him saying seek the way of water in the actual book. But the Book of Water also discussed the five attitudes of swordplay and how they should be used. The Book of Fire discusses the importance of timing as well as preparedness. He also discusses the importance of environmental preparedness, such as keeping in mind where the sun is, and especially when you're on the battlefield, like for a large-scale war, to make sure there are no obstacles between you and your opponent. And again, you could also apply that to uh, single combat as well. A lot of people who commentate on the Book of Five Rings have often said that it can apply just as much to a duel as it can to large-scale warfare. The Book of Wind discusses the importance of knowing about other styles so you can understand their strengths and weaknesses. Finally, the Book of the Void describes that which cannot be known. Or as he put it, by knowing things that exist, you can know that which does not exist. So it was about learning to perceive things that we have no physical relationship with, which I get, I'm not, I'm not sure if he was a practicing Buddhist for most of his life, but again, from what I remember of the Book of the Void, it's pretty short and sounds very influenced by Buddhism. But what about Musashi's ore? Well, this weapon was created in April of 1612 when he was on his way to an island for a duel with an equally skilled and famous samurai named Sasaki Kojiro. Now, there's uh, several different accounts of the duel, but it was said that Musashi arrived three hours late. While he was sailing to the island, he carved one of his boat's oars into a sword-like shape. There's a few different arguments as to, or theories as to why Musashi was late. Some say that it was said to unnerve his opponent. Others believe that it was so he could fight with the sun at his back and blind his opponent. And finally, another theory is that he made sure to time the tides so that after the duel, he would catch the outgoing tide and be able to make a quick escape. But this ore that he carved into the shape of the sword was used to kill Kojiro. So as far as how you would stat this out, I would actually give it the full abilities of a katana even though it's made of wood. So more properly, it would be a boken or a wooden practice sword. 
But again, I would give it that damage of the katana. And since he did use it to actually kill someone, I would also maybe give it a some sort of bonus with critical hits. Maybe depending on which version of D&D you're using. Uh, if you're using one of the later versions that has a critical threat range, maybe improve that range a little bit or maybe inflict extra damage with critical hits. Well, there you have it. A look at some legendary weapons from Japan. So with that said, I'd like to thank you for tuning in and have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. And go buy yourself a copy of Iron Maiden's Peace of Mind album. Even if you uh, don't want to get it just to listen to Sun and Steel, it's still a very good album. And honestly, in my opinion, it's probably one of their better albums and one of my personal favorite Iron Maiden albums. So good night, everybody, and we'll talk to you next time. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.